How do you solve a problem like an evil nun? In honor of The Nun 2 in theaters this weekend, what is your favorite nun in movies? I'm Katie Rich. And I'm going with Deborah Kerr's nun in the uh, completely gorgeous and insane Black Narcissus. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with uh, Sister Mary Stigmata, I think is her name, otherwise known as the Penguin from Blues Brothers. What a great name. And I'm David the Seven, and I'm going with Kathy Najime in Sister Act. Give her, give her, give her, give her gravy tonight. I like that dramatic recitation. Thank you. Hi, uh, I am David Ehrlich, and I feel like just, just for purposes of keeping the brand alive, I've got to go with uh, the, the nun that Phoenix Buchanan impersonated in Paddington 2. Oh, Lord. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 443. It is the week of Wednesday, September 6th. That is a day that in 1666, see, all those sixes really tells you that something's going to go wrong. Uh, after mm-hmm. St. Paul's Cathedral, much of the city had been burned over four days. The Great Fire of London was finally extinguished. I guess the, all the, the, the numerologists were like, we nine, told six, you. one, six, six, six. Boo. Yep. Although I guess it ended on the sixes day. So maybe it worked out better. Maybe that was the good day of the yeah. Great Fire of London. Um, Take that, sixes. As we record, this is just you and me on the line. There might be other pe- voices in this episode. Or, Through the magic of editing. I like to say that we're getting toward the end of our chaotic period, because I think we are. Like, I think summer's chaotic, and then the fall festivals are going to be a whole thing. This is the, uh, what, like, sixth anniversary of the year you and Patches canceled the podcast. Um, uh, because David and I like were that. going to Toronto. Um, so, like, a week, a week or two more of this. But then I think I think we're getting back together. Well, we uh, once the, week? the no, the uh, the fall festival. No, we weren't. Uh, David was absent. Oh, the fall festivals end, and then I go on a book tour for Ooh, a couple. That of weeks. is true. That after that, we should be all together for the holiday season slash wrap up slash top, top tens. 10, I've already started keeping my list of ten movies. Mm-hmm. The the turtle, the mutant mayhem movies currently on there because that's on PVOD now, so you could watch it at home. Oh, believe me, my bought- children are aware, and I've been like, we're not buying it yet we're not doing the thing we did for mario which was pay 30 dollars to own it because it was desperate times we're going to try to hold off i definitely am a paid 30 dollars to own it person i've been doing some frame by framing <laughs> that movie looks beautiful it, it really does i mean i would happily do a whole because i think i told you we saw it in theaters the second time um because of various kid reasons um but i had a great time on a second viewing yeah um but we also have uh as is this part of the podcast is for we have reviews Ooh. you could leave us reviews in the uh podcast app the apple podcast app if they're in the american store we will read them like this one from euro six weeblo i'm gonna guess it's weeblo from my boy scout days five stars uh, subjected the best movie friends you could ever wish for long time listener first ever podcast review i absolutely love the show and can't thank the host enough for being my thursday pick me up particularly during the nearly three years of pandemic episodes i produce media for a large suburban school district and the past years have been a nightmare of crisis communications and board meetings that often teeter on the edge of chaos but i can always look forward to a calming drive back to the city 
on those Thursday evenings listening to passionate discussions from people who love each other as much as the films they discuss or debate. Katie, Matt, Dave, and David have created a special podcast that feels like those rambling late-night discussions you had with your friends at the bar while you are buzzing from discovering a new gem of the screening. Messy, opinionated, and glorious fun. Thanks for everything. Huh. I was out of the country earlier this summer and missed the Road to Wellville discussions, <laughs> but can't help but bring it up one more time. Lousy movie, great novel by one of my favorite writers, and inspiration for my daughter's middle, middle name. She's named after T.C. Boyle. She's never seen the movie, and I hope she never does. <laughs> I like that if you miss the Road to Wellville, like of all the episodes, like that one has lingered for so long that you'll never get the continuity unless you go back and catch it. Yeah, who knows what happened with the, that one time they watched a Kellogg's movie. <laughs> uh, we got two emails. Uh, this one comes from uh, someone who doesn't sign their name, so I'm not going to out them. It says uh, Blue Beetle, question mark. So, uh, isn't there a Latino guy on this podcast who literally wrote the book on cinematic comic book heroes who might have a meaningful take on this movie? I skipped this movie based on David's take, but then I was surprised to hear fairly positive reviews and to see a strong audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that that really means much. Uh, love David and all, at least when he's not talking over the other podcasters, but let's hear from Dave on this. Uh, yes, listener, I did not make it out into the theaters uh, to see Blue Beetle. I have uh, been doing other things. First of all, the book. Uh, the MCU, the reign of Marvel Studios, just about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I do not want to be promising all the takes on all the cinematic uh, superhero <laughs> movies. That is not it. But you do, very you do know story. a lot. I mean, you know, cinematic universes are, in general, are an interest of yours, even if you only wrote a book about one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I do want to see Blue Beetle when it happens. The problem with Blue Beetle, and I think what I'm going to discover when I see it, perfectly fine movie. I know David didn't like it, but David doesn't like this type of movies. Yeah. I do. So I'm guessing it's perfectly fine. There's just, uh, of all the reasons to see a superhero movie, uh, the MCU keeps being like, we're doing this one continuity, and DC is trying to get back there, but there are all these hanging chat movies, uh, to make a 2000s elections reference still, <laughs> um, that are sort of in between universes. So my understanding is the things that happen in this movie don't matter, but the character will be back. Uh, so that signaled to me I had some time to see it. Mm. It also signaled to me that I maybe didn't need to make this big in the theater. Maybe I've betrayed uh, my ethnic uh, background with that. But yes, uh, I haven't seen Blue Beetle, but I will make sure I say something on this podcast when I do, because it shouldn't just be David who didn't like it who gets to say something. Do you, think that's, do you think that other people have that same logic? Like, that's why this movie underperforms and The Flash maybe underperforms is because they're like, yeah, it's not part of a continuity. I thought we were all sick of continuity. Uh, I think so. Well, I mean, The Flash is like, did you ever end up seeing The Flash now that it's available to stream on no. Max? No. The Flash is like <laughs> super continuity. Uh, oh, but it is, it's just continuity and like it is broken. That doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter. Um, Blue Beetle, I think, just got placed at a weird time in the summer where it ne wasn't going to necessarily do good. Uh, it got caught in the, the backlash of the Barmenheimer backlash, which is the most powerful force of the summer, regardless of what movie you are. What do you mean? The backlash, uh, like, to movies? I mean, a back backwash, I, I guess, would be, not backlash. Or like the, um, it like got drowned out, really. Yeah, yeah. I talked to people who were like, I did Barbenheimer and it was great, but like I went to the movies for my summer, sure. you know, like yeah. if, if you don't have kids and the kids aren't dragging you to kids movies. So you've seen Ninja Turtles twice. 
Right. Some people were getting outside while the getting was good. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and rather than going to the movies. And so I think Blue Beetle sort of probably got hurt a little bit by that. Well, and, then and if also, The Flash yeah. had done well, you can imagine them being like, sure, more superhero movies, but it's been a pretty rough couple months for superheroes. Yeah, so we're going to see what happens uh, because they've got one more left. They've got Aquaman, I think, is still in December. I don't know why they would push it back. Uh, so, but they also uh, haven't like, that, released anything from that movie yet. Correct. It's giving off but, the vibe of this movie isn't actually coming out, even if they haven't said as much. Right? Yeah, but I think it has to. I mean, it probably does. There's probably. I don't know. think they could kill Aquaman. They could kill a Batgirl nobody's seen before, but I don't think they'd kill Aquaman. Yeah. Uh, and like if they're really the, if the they're pushing Dune two, do they really want to uh, have that many things lingering? Rex, uh, and like also the more you push back these movies that don't matter, the more they're going to start encroaching on whatever pivot DC Films yeah. is going to try to make. And as you said, the about, first one made a billion dollars. Like, why would you not just release it? Just let it. Yeah. So I think we'll be seeing Aquaman in December, and then. We'll be finally done. Well, it took us 10 years to kill the Zack Snyder universe, and we're finally, we're finally going to do it this December. Uh, this next email comes from Brendan. It is titled Feel Good Films. Mm. Regarding what makes a feel good film, uh, the three that immediately came to mind were Cool Runnings, Working Girl, and School of Rock. I think what these movies have in common is how cleverly the movie decouples from the character's stated goals thus removing the artifice between the audience and the protagonist's personal development. Didn't Billy Wilder say something like, let the audience add two plus two and they'll go apeshit. The feel-good movie huh. works because we feel like we figured out the character's needs on our own, whereas a relentlessly positive movie, I'm thinking Hairspray, is just exhausting. The School of Rock kids lose the competition, but simultaneously force their parents to recognize them as individuals. The Jamaican bobsled team wipes out, but seems to win over the spectators by walking over the finish line with dignity. I think I haven't seen this since 1993. That's accurate. I think this happens, uh, happens, yeah. Yeah, in Working Girl, she gets her promotion, but what we thought was a rom-com has no trouble dismissing Harrison Ford so he can see her treat her new secretary with dignity, then lets Joan Cusack do some heavy lifting exuberance-wise. I guess what I'm saying is that since most films set out to be enjoyable, it requires the sleight of hand to make you actually feel it. I feel most good after watching Point Break because that guy just needed to quit being a cop. <laughs> I love Fitware. This is some pretentious shit. No need to read this one on the show. Too bad. <laughs> I really feel like, um, Dave, you should help us do a list of the guy who just needed to stop being a cop. And that's the happy ending. Like, I don't know how many movies are like that, honestly, but uh, uh, there's got to be some. It's probably more than you think. I've started rewatching Twin Peaks uh, mm. with my podcast with Neil Miller from Film School Rejects. And we got into like episode three and I'm like, here's why I struggle with the copaganda question in Twin Peaks because mm. it is David Lynch. It's like, are we even in reality at this point? Yeah. But uh, Twin oh. Peaks, you can make an argument that at the end, he just needs to stop being a cop. Doesn't he stop being spoilers for Twin Peaks? Like, doesn't it end with him not being a cop anymore? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's fine. Uh, multiple times it ended. It ended with him not being a cop anymore. Yeah. Sometimes he's possessed by an evil thing. Sometimes uh, no, no spoilers for 2017. But uh, yeah, that's uh, I'm always keeping an eye on it. Uh, if you want to leave us a review on the podcast app, we would love that. It's in the American store. We'll read it. We'll get it just out of the store. If you want to leave an international review, we would also love that because it helps people find us. 
Uh, and you can email a copy of that re- review to fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. That's also the email address to just reach us with your very pleasant thoughts. And WTF, why haven't you seen Blue Beetle yet, Dave? Uh, those are all welcome questions. All and, valid questions. Uh, yeah, we'll read them aloud. Uh, on with the show. Are you excited for Sweet. Wonka, David? You know, I it's Have a we very talked good about question. This? It's a very good question. I keep forgetting that Wonka exists whenever I'm <laughs> having a conversation with someone about how like that feels like the year in film is sort of over for those of us who's been on the festival circuit. Um and then wow. you know, I'm reminded that Wonka is sort of the big question mark. I, I am cautiously the year is over? Have you seen I, Maestro? I, I haven't, but enough people have that it feels like okay. I have. Okay. Um, it is, uh, I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic about Wonka, um, but we'll see. I don't know if this is the podcast or not, but thank you for I answering. mean, it can be. It can uh, be. If people for those of people you deserve who are to know how I feel about Wonka sight unseen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, for those of you uh, that uh, are joining the podcast linearly, you just heard Katie and I kick off the podcast with our intro segment. I'm here with Patches and David Ehrlich to do our tidbit before relinquishing back to Katie and myself for the mini segment and to talk about how to blow up a pipeline. So we decided we wanted to talk about some of the movies that David saw at the Telluride Film Festival or maybe just the film festival in general. David, what was the atmosphere out there uh, for, uh, you know, the beginning of the fall festival Telluride season? Telluride literally well, has a different kind of atmosphere, strikes. right? Like it's uh, less oxygen. I mean, thinner. Yeah, it's thinner. Yeah. It's definitely thinner. It's like John Krakauer just going to the fucking store. Um, is that is, why people uh, are over the moon for movies and just like applauding? Or is no, that more of a Venice thing? Do people stand it's in, definitely, standing O people, at Telluride? I have to say, uh, reactions seem kind of measured in Telluride just because it's so many different kind of people. I mean, right. it's, a, it's a handful of critics, a lot of film industry people, a lot of very rich patrons who pay an extraordinary amount of money um, to not only have passes for Telluride, but to write the festival into their will or trust um, and really sort of become long time, you know, more than lifelong supporters. And then there are a grab bag of uh, normies who sort of blow in um, and they find they, they either, you know, Pay for the pass, which is uh, unlike most film festivals where you know, press go for free. I mean, passes always cost money when film festivals are open to the public. At Telluride, even the press pay $780 for the, the lowest pass. There is actually, I think, a, a tier below that that doesn't, I don't know quite how it works. But um, but yeah, there are some casual people in there who just make it a fun destination. It's a beautiful town, 9,000 some odd feet above sea level, um, where you <laughs> can struggle to walk and talk at the same time. Uh, but it's 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 such a weird confluence of people that you don't get often the kind of um, like festival madness that you might you know get a beats of the southern wild you don't even get like a hitman which just which you know premiered at a uh, Richard Linklater's new movie with Glenn Powell which just premiered at Venice to apparently a screening room that was filled with nitrous oxide or something uh, because everyone who yeah. was there was euphoric afterwards and I saw that movie in a screening room in New York with two or three other people. And there was maybe like a half chuckle between a lot of us during the entire movie. Um, so, you know, Venice might be a little bit more geared towards that reaction, but 
It's tough to tell you, right? You could feel you feel the residual excitement because like things will premiere at Venice a day before they get to tell you right. If because uh, Venice well, tell you right will drift off some of those premieres. Tell you right has plenty of world premieres of its own. But in the case of something like Poor Things uh, that had already screened on the other side of the world and the reaction was strong enough that suddenly as if this, this was always going to be the case, but suddenly that Saturday night screening event at Telluride was like the place to be and had sort of an extra charge to it. Um, and you could find everyone from Emerald Fennell to Steve McQueen patiently waiting in line behind all the patrons to get in um, because Telluride, you know, how much you fork over for a pass is kind of the great equalizer there. Uh, but um, yeah, so it's a different vibe, different vibe, I would say. And then because the vibe is so mixed, even when something like Poor Things, which is incredible, does play, the reaction is all over the place. I, I, I don't want to room. talk too much about poor things, but all the reactions out of these festivals is certainly hyping me up because it feels like the one thing everyone seems to like. Did it play Telluride? Or it, yeah, yeah. Just in it, the glow it did, of it's it right. still, Okay. Oh, yeah. No, it's it. I mean, it was there. That's, uh, that's where you know everyone yeah. was, was gathered on Saturday night. They had a big tribute to Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, as they should. Praying at the altar. As they Can, should. Is he in the strangest uh, arc? Like, he is a... He seems beloved in yeah. the film community at large, but this is a man who's made very weird movies. Yeah, I mean, like the you know <laughs> the, he, he built up a he built up a lot of goodwill in unconventional ways. Dog you know, with, yeah, with with Dog Tooth and with <laughs> um, uh, what was that great that great movie made right after Alps? Um, and uh, and then moving into the English language stuff, and then the favorite was like a huge crossover Oscar winning hit. Oh. Um, and actors love working with him, Emma Stone in particular. And the scale at which he's made this new movie, Poor Things, uh, is, you know, it looks, well, the favorite, the favorite was, was a pretty lavish looking movie, uh, itself. But, um, this is still a pretty outrageous scale for a filmmaker like Yorgos Lanthimos, um, and someone whose, uh, movies are probably slightly towards the niche side. It's hard to imagine you know, despite the critical hysteria around this movie, that it's going to draw in the kind of general audiences that Favorite did. It's sort of a play on Frankenstein. It's based on an actual novel, not Frankenstein. Um, that It's like a Frankenstein-like story uh, where Emma Stone plays a... Uh, a <laughs> in like, it's, it's set in like a Gilliam-esque 19th century, and she plays a woman who commits suicide, but Willem Dafoe, who is essentially the dad from uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas... Uh, looks just like him, acts just like him, is just like him, uh, rescues her body. And uh, I don't want to give away too much, but she puts puts a an infant's brain into the body of this 20 or 30 something year old woman and then re-energizes her back to life as an infant in a adult woman's body who is then begins to learn about the world and particularly, um, well, starting with sex. Sex is a lot of it. Uh, the the great inciting incident of the plot is her discovering her clitoris and uh, moving from there. Um, and it, it is it is hysterical. I mean, like Emma Stone is just so insanely good in this movie. The physical comedy is absolutely unreal. Mark Ruffalo, as I've been describing it, is in his Paddington is Hugh Grant in Paddington Two era. It's a reference back to the lightning round of this episode. Uh, I mean, he is truly going for broke as a rakish uh, suitor who uh, is in love with her and plans on brushing this lady off. But then when as soon as she sort of, I, I don't want to say too much more, but it, it's, it's uh, it, it, you know, I'm still sort of grappling with what is there. Um, I, my feeling was that it is 
a little on the thin side as this sort of fairy tale, uh, this Baroque Gilliam-esque fairy tale, but its pleasures are so extreme and visceral and audacious that it is, I found it impossible not to love, uh, even if it, the diminishing, the returns are slightly diminishing as it goes along over the course of its 150 minutes, but um, it's a special one. What else helps to keep me from monologuing? Ask me questions. <laughs> uh, what? what uh, outside of that, that seems to be a movie that is being well received. What was something that you enjoyed uh, just personally with David Ehrlich time? Oh, I'm before? well. I don't yeah, get any of that, but I'm not glad you the asked. Oscar contender out of Telluride. It might be the. I'm contention. glad you both asked in your own ways. Uh, the answer <laughs> to that, well, I mean, the two thing, two films I'd want to talk about. One is one that. The Oscar pundits I talked to, David Canfield of uh, Katie Rich's Vanity Fair in particular, was very Rich's bullish on. Vanity Fair, that's the full um, title. You don't see that unless you look really close at the magazine cover. It's in the fine print. Um, he was saying that similar to how, like in the Paul Mescal slot from After Sun last year, it might be Andrew Scott in another movie that happens to star Paul Mescal uh, called All of Us Strangers by Andrew Haig, who made Weekend in 45 Years and uh, Lean on Pete. And it is uh, a really, really emotionally polarizing and powerful ghost story of sorts about a screenwriter played by Andrew Scott who um, is writing about coming out in, or not, well, not coming out really, about being uh, gay in 1987 London. And in order to sort of prepare himself for that project, he goes back to visit his childhood home in the suburbs of London where he happens upon very casually uh, his dead parents who died when he was 12 and he never got a chance to come out to and never got really chance to know him. Um, and they have stayed the same age. They're played by Jamie Bell and Claire Foy. And he is now a 40 something year old man who's older than both of them. And uh, the, the premise is never really like, that's clearly what's happening, but um, there's no conversation between them where it's like, you're dead. I'm alive. Like everything is very sort of um, self-evident to all the characters and, um, it's just this incredibly moving story uh, in all the way. I mean, the premise alone, I think, regardless of where you come at it from your own life, is is enough uh, to be moving. And Andrew Haig does a really good job of leaving space in every frame for you to sort of bring your own shit to the table. And Paul Meskel plays a guy in the present day who Andrew Scott's character meets and begins having a relationship with, even though Andrew Scott's character is a little bit closed off to the world and it's a story about letting people in in more ways than one but that uh that it comes out in december um and they'll give it an awards push sure why not i mean it's so powerful it could work uh the other movie that does not have any sort of awards traction in its future but i thought was really satisfying all the same is a new movie by kitty green who made the assistant a few years ago which was about um a girl played by julia garner who worked in a very i mean it was harvey weinstein without being said to be harvey weinstein's production office and was sort of over the course of 24 hours seeing firsthand um, the, the culture of, uh, of sexual abuse that ran rampant in that office, that industry. Her new movie is called The Royal Hotel, and it basically takes a similar premise and girls in peril uh, under the threatening male gaze. Uh, it takes the same actress, Julia Garner. back in his... Uh, she found... She found <laughs> Kitty Green <laughs> found the one, the one place uh, <laughs> maybe scarier for Julia Garner to work than Harvey Weinstein's office, and it is a bar in the middle of the outback in a mining town in Australia uh, where she is there with Jessica Henwick uh, from the Matrix wow. Revolution uh, Resurrected. They play two Americans who run out of money on vacation and join up for this like work uh, travel program that puts them up in this bar in 
basically the last place on earth that two uh, women in their late 20s or early 30s should ever be by themselves. And it's owned by, um, uh, why is his name escaping me? It wasn't at all when I saw him on screen. The guy from The Matrix. Thank you. And uh, and, uh, the guy, Toby Wallace, from my favorite Baby Teeth, who is also in Jeff Nichols' The Bike Riders, which was at Telluride and a little bit disappointing, but he is coming on. Um, and, uh, and it's basically just this very masterfully done pulpy sort of like late nineties esque thriller, uh, like a frog boiling in water of, of just like the male attention getting more and more hostile towards these two women, um, as the bar where they're working begins to go under around them and every sort of, uh, like protective layer around them begins to dissolve. Is it based on a book or something? It sounds just so specific. I don't think so. yeah, that's interesting. I it's uh, you know Kitty Green's Australian. Oh, she's Kitty Green's Australian. Within a, okay. Yeah, this she's working within sense. a subject matter that she cares about, and uh, they're able to make yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, she's able to make this like really, really well crafted thriller that is again like for the most part in a single location, but unlike the assistant, does not feel quite so cloistered because of where that location is, and um, it, yeah, and, and they shot it in a town that has an actual population in real life of 29 people. And that really comes through in the movie. Um, I cannot remember the last time I was as concerned for the physical well-being of a character in a movie. Uh, it, it's a, it's a really nail biting ride and they are going to neon. is going to release that in early October. Oh, cool. so you'll yeah, be able to scoop it up. Nice. They just scooped up the, they have a Duvernay. Yeah. Uh, which I have not seen, but, um, Doing yeah, I mean, AI Jeff Nichols movie, the, the bike riders was there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Tom Hardy, a lot of, uh, Austin Butler. It's like the Avengers of, of greasy <laughs> men who make weird acting choices. Um, yeah. I and mean, Jodie Comer is doing like a Midwestern accent that is both like yes, impressively chameleonic, but also like totally <laughs> insane. Um, that movie's okay. It feels like Goodfellas for 30 minutes and then completely stalls out. Uh, oh, no. I'm yeah. rooting for Jeff Nichols. What was his yeah. last movie? Was it the one with the boy with the glowing eyes? Oh, Lord. Yeah, in a minute. Um, I met him at the lunch in the opening day. We had a lovely conversation about Franklin's uh, barbecue in Austin. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, Delicious. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else? I mean, uh, I see there's some Netflix. What's up? How was uh, Saltburn? Oh, boy. Oh, Lordy. I had the pleasure of seeing Saltburn before going to tell your ride. Um, I wouldn't have minded. This being is the new the Emerald Fennell film. Yeah, uh, it, it's a lot. It's a lot like the old Emerald Fennell film in some ways. Promising young woman, <laughs> um, another filmmaker like Kitty Green, sort of taking her similar focuses into new milieus. This one is not so much about rape culture and Me Too, but um, certainly, clearly, the same filmmaker, the same uh, instinct towards provocation, the same sort of candied aesthetic. Beautiful. Um, Beautiful to look at, wonderful scenes and moments that don't at all cohere into something larger uh, and <laughs> become very frustrating for that. Uh, Barry Keegan very much in uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer mode as a guy from the, I guess you could say the wrong side of the tracks, who goes to Oxford and becomes sort of enamored with Jacob Elordi, who's sort of like the, you know, the popular jock rich kid. And gets invited to his house, which is called Saltburn. And it's interesting to note that it's like it's a house that has never been. It's this incredibly beautiful palatial estate in wherever England. And we don't know where it is because the owners won't publicly reveal. It's never been used in a movie before. And they've 
threatened to never let it be used in the movie again. Uh, but it is a hell of a location. Um, uh, one could say a character unto itself. But it's basically about the summer that Barry Keegan spends weaseling his way into Jacob Elordi's family and their money. It's very talented Mr. Ripley slash Teorema, but set in the early aughts. So there's a big, like, you can smell an Abercrombie and Fitch store when you're watching it. Uh, the soundtrack <laughs> is all like management and neon Bible era, arcade fire and block party and shit like that. Um, there is a justification for that in the press notes. It is one that I didn't find entirely convincing, but the real justification is that Emerald Fennell is roughly the same age that we are and grew up then and wanted to make a movie about a time that she knew, which is fine by me. Um, and uh, yeah, it's fun. I mean, people will be talking about it for sure. Uh, the last shot is a doozy. There's some there's some wacky stuff in there. It tries to be salacious in a way that comes that feels forced and comes very, very naturally to poor things. Um, but it's not a bad time at the movies. It's just a tough time as a film critic to kind of sit with what it all means. Um, but yeah, Alper. And that's coming out uh, in November, I think around Thanksgiving time. I think actually on my son's birthday, on November 24th. Take him to Saltburn. So, yeah, happy fourth maybe, birthday. Here's Saltburn. Here's Saltburn. Maybe as a way of uh, moving towards a conclusion, am I the only person on this uh, Zoom call currently who has not married a couple? Yes. Uh, has not, oh, officiated a, the oh, marriage of, oh. of a officiated couple? A I, I thought that was your way of saying that you and Java broke up. Yeah, I immediately <laughs> married or no. a couple. Um, I was like, wow, uh, way to bury the lead. I don't know uh, about Katie. Yeah. I mean, on, on this call, currently, yes. Wait, Patches, who did you marry? I just recently married my sister and her husband. Well, that's lovely. Did you fuck it up? No, I did a grand job. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> did, did. You know, did I'm a lively man. I'm a did she turn to you in the middle of the ceremony and say, you've ruined my evening and possibly my entire life? Um, no. No. No, okay. But, uh, but <laughs> I that was my, I that, it, that was my fear. Um, when I was so much more nervous to officiate my friend Marie Barty. How can uh, you fuck up? There's nothing to fuck up. Read the well, word. I wrote the entire Did you go ceremony. Off script? Oh. oh no! I wrote the entire ceremony, barring their beautiful, beautiful vows that they wrote to each other, uh, more declarations this is what we of do, intent. Though. But We're um, great performers. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, she picked me, and I was skeptical about this, and may remain skeptical about this because she had seen me do Q and As, and I was like, you know, I don't, I don't know if sitting in a chair and asking James Franco why he's so brilliant <laughs> is really a skill set that applies to marrying people, and. One big difference. Really, patches, it takes a great bullshit this. artist to do that, and, and put on the grid. <laughs> the, the patches. One big difference I found. I don't know if this dovetails with your experience. Is that I had to stand the entire time, and oh, my leg wow. uh, for at least the first half was just involuntary. Even though my voice didn't sound nervous at all, my leg was violently and invis- visibly shaking. Um, and that is not a problem you have to deal with in most post movie Q and As. But uh i think it, i mean you know the only review that really mattered besides marie's and you know i think she was tactful enough to say that she liked it anyway was was her mom's and her mom seemed pleased so i'm taking that to the bank but yeah that's the important thing yeah. the important the important opinion on wedding day is is the mother that, uh, who's giving yeah giving i mean i i loved it i gotta say dave for anyone else listening out there if if anyone who's meaningful to you in your life ever asks you to officiate a wedding uh, I say dive in at first. It was a really, I mean, it was really stressful because I didn't want to fuck it up, and because I spent the two weeks right before festival season only writing that instead Did of you quote any, any uh, movies during during the ceremony. Was I there did any not reference. 
of many references, no quotes. Really? But uh, well, they met. You dared to make pop culture references. You shrek a lot down. of them were a lot of them were. It was it was like I called my friend Jeff uh, Jeff Katzenberg, and he <laughs> was giving me some uh, some good advice about how to shrek it out. Uh, no, Break it this was, up into know. two minute shorts. <laughs> Quick bites, uh, they, David. They bonded. <laughs> they they met outside of the or at the Nighthawk Cinema and bonded over their love of Ken Burns and their disagreement over how much Marie's husband hates David Lynch. Uh, and so there were a few really natural, irresistible entry points to talking about pop culture. I don't think I I don't think I gilded the lily too much, but um, some something had to be mentioned. It was mostly just talking about history and marriage and shit like that. Uh, but. Uh, um, as Kevin Smith would say, I just felt very Kevin Smith just being like, and shit like that. Like, <laughs> it's going to do tick. Anyway, um, welcome to the recesses of my brain. Uh, I, I, <laughs> it was a very meaningful experience to me to be able to do that for a friend and hopefully do a good job. Um, very rewarding. And, uh, and possibly the best part is that Marie and David, her husband, kindly got me a gift certificate to my beloved Nunes ice cream as a thank you. <laughs> And yeah. so I, like, How I just circle got back to the podcast's main thing. <laughs> I just got in the post today a box full of dry ice and four pints of delicious. Where the fuck Nunes do you keep cream. this? You do not have a big place. Uh, yeah, I mean, this and is I a assume that, that my, your freezer my is darling not... wife asks me every time uh, <laughs> that I get some when she rolls, even though we only got it because Marie asked Elisa what she thought I would like as a thank you. And this was Elisa's answer, so she only has herself to blame. But she was not pleased when she saw the box come. Anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, Dave, who are you going to marry? Besides, not Java. Uh, that seems clear at this point. But who else? Uh, oh, oh, oh! I, just, I, I don't know. I guess I need to uh, review my options. Uh, I, nobody's told me or Java that uh, I need to find somebody to marry. Well, see, the beautiful so. thing of marrying someone in this sense is that you don't have to marry your partner if that's a decision that you and your partner have chosen to make so uh you get the best of yeah, all yeah, worlds yeah. no i mean i mean if anybody asked me i would definitely do it i think at this point though the safest thing before you know i start fading uh mentally or for some weird reason no no foreshadowing there just it's gonna happen to all of us i should just record a ceremony as a wave file and make it available to couples do you think that'd be like elbowing my way in too much be like i Hey, congratulations on your engagement. Here's a wave file you would get married It sounds to. a little chat GBT to me um, in that I don't know how personal it could be in this scenario. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think writing wedding ceremonies would be a great gig if it, it didn't like take everything out of you for several weeks to do it right. Uh, right. I, that, I, that's what I'm trying to do. I want the credit of having done yeah. it, but I don't want the actual well, emotional to, stakes of having to do it. Welcome to writing like, anything. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. I love to have written. That's fucking uh, true. Uh, patches, patches, question. For your ceremony, for your sister's ceremony, yes. were you working from like a template or something? Because I, I had the good fortune of the fact that the person who married me is a close friend of mine, and she is a priest. That's what she does. And so she was able to send me not just a script she wrote for my wedding, but scripts that she has written and performed for several uh, friends uh, or people I know's weddings. And so I had that as just like a structural yeah. template. A well, I don't want to put my sister on blast, but since she definitely does not listen to the podcast, I'll, I will say I asked the couple to send me ideas for what they wanted. And what I received 
must have been the like Microsoft Word template for wedding ceremonies because I just thought it was awful and generic. And it was yes. perfect to start from like, okay, you know, you want to mention your past, <laughs> you want to mention you're in love. Good. All right. We can start there. And then it was a lot of riffing. You know, I mentioned this podcast <laughs> earlier. I did a little like me back and forth with the AI. Just give me some ideas and I'll reject all these bad ones. And I don't want it to be generic. So I use the AI to like bounce ideas off and make sure that it wasn't really templatized and, and um, generic and artificial. It was fun. It's sort of a non sequitur, but I do have, but I cannot talk about Telluride on this podcast without mentioning one last thing to close up this segment. It's actually not a non sequitur. The segment was about the Telluride Film Festival and yeah, so this is, this, this is the bringing it back this, this is, is the, the end sequitur. of summer segment I feel like yeah this yeah, is the so sequitur bring but it I, back. I got it I was I was at Telluride I was walking around and someone comes running up behind me and says are you David Ehrlich and uh, I you know never know what to say in that situation because you don't know what they <laughs> you know what's after that if you're me uh it may not be good <laughs> things but in this case I fessed up to the sad fact that I am and this person said that the person who her name is Bethany, who runs uh, one of the theaters to tell you right. It was a big fan and need to meet me. So I said, great, I'll go and meet her before the poor things. So I go to poor things and the guy finds me and he like, he's like, oh my God, you got to come right now. You got to go. So I get swept in and he calls Bethany on the walkie talkie and Bethany comes down the stairs and it's very, it's very awkward because she sees me and she knows this happened. And the first words out of her mouth were, oh my God, I love your podcast. Uh, and, it was like, and you were like, so, "What podcast? What are you what, talking what podcast? about?" I, I really, I mean, every time, every time someone says that, um, it, it's always so, so deflating because it's like, "What? What's a? What's wrong with you? B? What? Like, <laughs> like that's you know the 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 worst the worst foot forward that I'm putting of myself in all of the work that I do in my life." Um, and then she proceeded to talk about how wonderful my my podcast colleagues were. Um, and, uh, I, uh, she lives up in Rhinebeck, I think she does works like in some of the, the film festival institutions in upstate New York. Uh, but it was fun to tell your ride. Someone there, there are fighting in the war room fans, um, who incidentally can tolerate David Ehrlich, but really <laughs> just that gateway into <laughs> loving, uh, this podcast, believe it or not. And some of them, uh, are in positions of power at theater showing poor things. So. Uh, you never know. But <laughs> shout out to <laughs> Bethany. That was fun. Is uh, you're Thanks, one out of one person who came up to me and gave a shit and asked about this podcast. Okay, it's time for me to do my best Matt Patches and ask a question. And I really think this is more of a question for the listeners than for Dave specifically. Because, Dave, have you ever lived with a cat? No, I'm allergic to cats, Katie. Ah. I one time had mono and then went to visit my grandparents who have cats. And usually it's, like, not a huge deal. Like, I could live with cats. My neighbors slash best friends growing up had cats and we'd have, like, sleepovers. All cool. Sure. But I remember the mono sort of knocked down my uh, immune system a bit. The cat slept on my face and both my eyes swelled up. And they had to take me to the hospital. No. I had to get shots in both ass cheeks uh, to make my swelling go down. And I, I like the idea that one ass cheek is home. connected to one eye. Like you can't just do it in <laughs> yeah. one. You have to, to exactly. match them. <laughs> Sitting down was painful and uncomfortable. Uh, wow. Yeah, no, so that was, that was my... That was uh, the end of cats. That's, that's my extreme cat experience. But I've uh, learned to because... 
um you know lots of people have cats sure. i don't uh, i have a prejudice against them because mm. they make me allergic sure well because of that i also sort of there was a period of time in my elementary school days where uh the ability to communicate with household pets became very important to me mm. so i did i did a whole science project on canine communication mm -hmm. because we had a miniature schnauzer and uh, as some of you might know with that breed they clip their ears and tail which are two of the main ways that dogs signal to each other emotions and things mm -hmm. so I, I know that from Bluey. did a whole bunch of yeah i did a whole bunch of tests of uh how uh the dogs would communicate to each other and when i sort of started probing into cats i just learned how to uh mimic their hissing mm -hmm. and their dis their displeasured mewing it's like uh-huh uh-huh yeah so then i could do it back at them so they know i don't want them near me ah and it works yeah, yeah. Joanna Robinson, when she first discovered this, I was visiting her old apartment and her cat walked up to me and I made the mad mewing sound mm -hmm. and then I hissed at it and she's like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> I'm like, I'm just, I'm just talking to it. What have you done to my completely cute cat? Oh, I don't believe that cat's completely innocent, but yes, uh, <laughs> Katie, that's a real quick download on cats. What's up with you and cats? Uh, so we had a cat. Uh, I was just thinking how you went to my apartment plenty of times when uh, I lived with a cat because my husband and I got together. He had had a cat when he was in college, which really he had no business getting a cat in college, and yet it worked out pretty well. And this cat was very chill. He liked to like be in the room when we had people over. Like He had about a maximum of like six or eight people could come over, and he'd want to like hang out and sit on laps. After that, he'd go hide, which I think is perfectly reasonable thing to do uh, and I always suspected part of that was from being raised in a college house like he was just raised in like parties like essentially a frat house and you know mm -hmm. I've joked forever that you should have a cat foster program where for the first three months they live in a frat house and are just surrounded by people and then they'll be used to being around people all the time um, so that cat, he died at the age of 16 in 2020, uh, had a great, excellent life, uh, and we missed him, and just now we're thinking about getting cats again. Uh, mm. it, it, by the time you hear, well, actually, no, like by the next time I'm on this show and I'm back from Toronto, we may very well be the owners of two kittens um, that we are working with a, a rescue agency to figure out the right ones for our house, and we're kind of going off of high-energy kittens suit high-energy children, which we have in our house. But my question right. for people is, like, how do you make your cat cool? How do you, like, do you have to luck out and get a cat who is going to be chill and want to hang out with you? Or is there a way that you can work with these kittens when they're little, socialize them in some way so that they are, like, going to be your friend and not, like, hang out under the bed and try to attack people, which is what the cat my mom grew up with did. Yeah, but that that is a... That is a tough one that I don't know the answer to. If, if it was a puppy, mm -hmm. I might be able to yeah. help coach with that because I have raised some puppies, but cats, yeah, I don't necessarily know. Do you think it like it helps to uh, treat them with a, a motherly sort of demeanor? Like, I don't do you know. pick it up by the back of its neck and move it around? Or the house do you and... just treat them like you are also a kitten and you like mess with them all the time, you know? Like, you just like wrestle and like tackle them. And, you know, we both work from home. So I think we'll have what a lot of cats want, which is just like someone's lap to sit in during the day, which seems great. Like, I think we can provide a lot of this stuff. But I'm curious if like cat personalities are completely innate. And like when we were talking to this rescue, like the foster ones are like, well, this one really likes to snuggle and this one really likes to chase this specific toy. And so like, I think they come with some of that, but you know, we're going to give them different names. Like they're going to have a different household. And I wonder if people have, feel like they have successfully like helped a cat be like a chill, fun member of the household and what we should do. Yeah. This is my request. Just lots of whatever the anti-catnip is. 
Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes catnip makes them chill out and sometimes it makes them go crazy. Um, and like some high right, energy is, like is acceptable. There's also like cat grass you can grow. I mean, we were like hardcore cat people before we had kids. And it's funny to like be going back to this period where it's like, you're part of the house now, cat, but like we got other things going on. Like you are not, you're not the top priority the way that the last cat was. God rest Now, do you think this this starts a new chain of like now you're just going to have cats Maybe. for the rest of your life? I don't know. It's like it's been many things about not having cats has been nice. Like there's been no litter box. We don't have to get a cat sitter when we leave town. Like, you know, furniture stays fine, like all that stuff. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, we're just accepting like downgrading our quality of life in these various ways so that we can have cats live in our house. And um, I feel like once you've accepted that, maybe there's no going back. Yeah, there was when my when we got uh, dogs as a family, we got one dog that put, took me through like early high school. And then we got uh, two puppies to keep each other company was the thing. But also it ended up they ended up staying when Kevin and I went off to college. Yeah. And so then it be, kind of became my parents. Yeah. Yeah. My parents, children. And there was a period of time after those two dogs passed away that I was like, oh, maybe we broke the chain. And so far, chains remained broken. Wow. Uh, parents don't have uh, although my mom dog sits still regularly she basically has a pet so that's been her way of uh contributing to the pet lifestyle i think my yeah, I, mean, I think my mom will have a dog forever like she's always gonna have someone in there like that's been her certainly her empty nest process is having like just basically two dogs like she got one dog when i was a senior in, uh, in college and now she has another one cute yeah, yeah. I'm a dog person, not a cat person, but I, uh, since your family sounds like cat people, I look forward to hearing uh, what happens when you get two new members of your family. Yeah, I mean, I don't put pictures of my kids on Instagram, but I pro or on Twitter, um, on private Instagram, um, but I probably will put on Twitter pictures of cats because, you know, they're cats. They can be on Twitter. Yeah, no one's got to dox your cats. No, watch this space. This week, we watched something on the old Hulu streaming service. It was Ye old how, Hulu. Sorry. Ye old Hulu. It was How to Blow Up a Pipeline. This apparently came out in April of this year at a very limited theatrical run, closed out making under a million dollars, but now is available to stream and is hopefully a way for more people to check it out because this is a... I don't know. It's a thriller mm -hmm. uh, with a eco mind on it. Uh, this is a uh, based off of a nonfiction book by Andreas Malm, uh, of which you could get for free uh, if you want to check it out um, by going to how to blow up a pipeline dot film slash ebook, and you enter the ebook code pipeline. You could download uh, the book for free. The book is nonfiction. It makes a argument. Have you read the book? Clive, uh, no, what Java has, okay. which is uh, why she provided this link for me and has been talking to me about it. Um, and she wants me to add it to my books of the year list. And so I'll get to that when I can. Uh, but it is a nonfiction book uh, that makes the argument that we are not moving fast enough on climate change. We've been setting up um, global <laughs> organizations for over a decade now to combat climate change. And things are only getting worse, which means... Uh, the types of activism and the organizations that we have set up, the GMOs, uh, are 
uh, or sorry, the NGOs, yeah, the GMOs the, are the, the food. Different thing. Yes, the NGOs uh, are not doing enough. Instead, we need to go uh, directly to violent protest action. Uh, in this case, the destroying of property and how to blow up the pipeline focuses on that. It tells the story of a group of young adults. Yeah, let's say young adults yeah. uh, on the younger side of young adults. And uh, they find each other to blow up a pipeline in West Texas uh, because that is where the oil prices are indexed. Uh, so if you make West Texas oil more expensive, you make all oil more expensive and draw a lot of attention to this. They managed to find a place where they could blow up the pipeline in two spots and not spill a lot of oil because they are, they do care about the climate, even though their way of uh, caring is environmental terrorism. Uh, this movie includes a lot of discussion between the characters about uh, whether or not this action is going to be hurting more innocent people, about whether or not they're okay with being called terrorists. Uh, the characters all represent a certain possible view uh, to somebody who would maybe engage in environmental terrorism. But all these people are, at their core, fictional people who exist to tell this story. That's what it's about on the surface. Mm -hmm. While you're watching it, Katie, I don't know if you felt this way. Is it just like a long Breaking Bad episode? <laughs> I mean, it's a, a heist in the desert. So, yeah, I, I can I can see that. Yeah, the structure is we start as this group is uh, coming together in a abandoned house that they will be making bombs to blow up the pipeline. And then we get uh, flashbacks to what brought uh, the characters in. Uh, our main characters are Theo and Sochi. Sochi is a college student uh, that is after the death of her mother uh, because of a freak heat wave. Uh, decides that college is not doing enough. Uh, incremental progress isn't working fast enough. So she uh, gets her friend Sean, who is a uh, running audio for a documentarian, uh, to join her in this plan. And Sean is able to, through his documentary work, uh, find Dwayne, who owns the property, used to own the property where the pipeline was until uh, the oil company took it away because the state used eminent domain on him which is where the state could seize your property for public goods in this case a gigantic oil pipeline theo uh as we learn fairly early on has a negative diagnosis because a negative makes it sound like she's gonna live yeah wait. has a bad diagnosis yeah. a bad medical diagnosis Terminal cancer it seems Yes, because of her exposure to chemical plants growing up, or is heavily implied, uh, his, her girlfriend, Theo's girlfriend, Alicia, uh, gets pulled in, but she's the last flashback, so I don't want to necessarily say why Alicia, uh, in case I could lure you to see sure. this movie. And uh, then we have uh, Rowan and Logan, who seem like two people that you would expect to be environmental terrorists. They are, they seem to be the youngest of the group. They are a couple and they've done some property damage. They have like a before. crust punk vibe about them. Indeed. They don't give a shit about anything except maybe each other in the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we get to go through this heist and watch it from beginning to end with a little bit of fallout at the end. Uh, but I do think it's, you know, pretty well plotted. It's plotted 
like a thriller would be. It's got the thriller movements. It's got the thriller shots. Um, before I get into some things that maybe uh, were a little weird about this movie for me, Katie, did you like How to Blow Up a Pipeline, the movie? Yeah, I think it's hard not to like a thriller that kind of works with this level of precision. Like, I think it it goes along all of the points where you got watch him make the plan, you watch him repeat the plan, then you watch the plan go wrong. Like, it's really hard to beat that format for storytelling. As you were going through the list of all the characters, I was like, yeah, there's a lot of characters in this movie. That might be part of the oh, yeah. problem of, of how, of how you... Also, oh, yeah, go ahead. I skipped Michael, who uh, is from a North Dakota reservation oh, right. that has also been taken over. Right. Uh, and he's just, he just, he's just looking for a place to direct his violence. Yeah. And, uh, but also is a, uh, uh, has taught himself how to make uh, blasting caps yeah. uh, from scratch. Yeah. So the, the story sets it up so that you kind of watch these people in action. It kind of hits to a breaking dramatic cliffhanger and then it flashes back to see how they got to this point more or less. It's very Lost inspired. I'm sure you um, had some Ooh, flashbacks. Yeah, I mean, I'm, good I'm, I want to say it's inspired by Lost, but it's a similar vibe. Um, but it's a lot of toggling back and forth. I don't think that takes away the tension. I think like once the actual heist is in place and then there's like, you know, earlier steps in it where they're like, everyone's got to lift up this big thing and like something like there's a rope fraying, you know, something's going to go wrong. There's some kind of some like built in tension into that part of it. Um, but I think making it work as a thriller is the way that you get audiences to engage in it. And I think that, you know, it's never coming to the point being like, are these kids, do they really need to do this? Like you see some debate, you see Sochi debating with the, you know, the people at her college who are like, we must di divest from coal energy. And she was like, this is bullshit. This is not enough. And you're kind of immediately like, yeah, I do see what you're talking about. Um, and then, you know, there's some of them who, you know, want to say, hey, maybe don't spend the rest of your life in jail for all of this. But I think it takes as a given that the uh, climate change is a crisis and no one has done enough, which is an interesting kind of compact to make with your audience that you're going to take them to that point that quickly and then let the story unfold from there. And I think it's really successful in the way that it does that. I think the neatness of the thriller can make it, even though it's about such dire straits that are so familiar and scary to all of us like it doesn't stick it doesn't like linger in you the way that maybe it would if it were mm. a little more lyrical or had more time for its characters or wasn't so like um lean with the way that it told its thriller story but for like a low budget movie with a huge idea on its mind i still think that's probably the best way they could have structured their story but like i didn't feel a lot by the end of this movie weirdly yeah, and there's sort of like an ending that involves some characters uh, taking a stand that was hidden in plain sight all along, I guess would be one place to put it. Yeah. And it does sort of feel like that, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to Ocean's Eleven at the end of your, 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 like, issues movie. I think it's okay uh, to Ocean's like Eleven, but it's hard to pull that off. It's hard to have that, like, and then actually, like, you know, this thing was, hand this handshake meant this thing. It's just hard to do. Like that's a narrative trick, and, it, and I think it works. It doesn't fail, but there's a there's an element of like, well, how was I supposed to know that that was what was going to happen? Like, you're, it, <laughs> the rug pull is a tough thing to pull off. But I don't think I don't think it's yeah. bad. It takes away from the issues of it at all. No, I don't think so. I think the issues are the thing that come through this movie the strongest by the time it's over. Uh, not that the character work isn't good, but because you're in this, because they've chosen to intercut things, uh, background stories with the actual thriller means that I think we spend a little bit less time on background stories that I would have liked. Mm -hmm. It means we're kind of the opening sequence of the film is sort of the band getting together, yeah. but we don't know who the band members are. So we're kind of robbed a little bit of that excitement point. 
And then um, there's one cutaway where we go to learn uh, Michael's backstory as he's assembling the three blast caps. Yeah. And he messes one up and it explodes. And we cut from that explosion to Michael's backstory. And then we come back and we see that Michael's okay. And he like apologizes and he goes back to work. Which is fine. I think that was brilliant. The problem, I think, with the movie after that is every time we're placing one of these blast caps, we watch the entire process happen again. Hmm. And I'm like, this is the third time I've watched somebody install a blast cap in this movie. Well, because you're and waiting it for it to go like, wrong again, right? I mean, presumably, but how many times can you pull that trick before you're yeah. just like, yeah. Yeah. If, like, if the third one went off, I don't know if it would have significantly changed the ending of the movie, for instance. Yeah. But... Uh, I do think it is incredibly efficiently shot. Mm -hmm. I think it's very well plotted. Um, but I guess overall, how do you feel about the message that this movie is sending? It does focus a lot on oil, a lot on pollution, which is good, until the ending where we get a little coda uh, that the message is spreading and it shows some kids about to blow up a yacht. <laughs> and it's like, and leaving behind a manifesto that's like, here's why we destroyed your property. And I'm like, that's a little bit of a leap to me. Yeah. Because it's, it starts off with slashing tires and it's like, I'm going to destroy your property to save the world, mm -hmm. which I, I've heard about that happening and I can see why somebody would do it. But blowing up an oil pipeline seems like a different thing between destroying people's actual individual property yes. like company property versus individual property especially because it feel i have not read the book how to blow pipeline but like a lot of the idea of individual solutions to climate change um have failed and i think that's part of the frustration now it's like for years we were told to recycle and to buy better light bulbs and we're like wait a second there's actually massive structural change that has to happen that no one's actually willing to do which i think is why you blow up the pipeline and not necessarily a yacht, even though slashing the tires of the gigantic trucks that you see in various parts of the country um, is very tempting. And I understand that impulse a lot. I mean, I don't want to be the almost 40 year old sitting in my comfortable house being like, well, I don't know, kids. I don't know about property damage. Like that is absolutely the attitude that the movie is rightly targeting. But right. do you think that this movie will inspire more people to do the same or does it inspire more people like me i don't know that i automatically would have thought like oh these terrorists these kids they need to get it together i don't know that i automatically would have th thought that but i think i'm less likely to think that now and i wonder if that's the real purpose not to inspire people to be like soshi and company but but just to like move your mental goalposts a tiny bit yeah, I, and I think that's why the yacht thing was so puzzling to me at the end. Because well, they can't blow up my the, yacht, obviously. Well, but I mean, the progression from slashing tires on yeah. an SUV to blowing up an oil pipeline, that's a progression I see the purpose of and I could get behind. Yeah. If this, mov this movie needed more pieces, if it was wanted me to end on a property that hurts the environment must be destroyed at all costs. Like, it's not yeah. human... It's property. I, I feel that way, basically. I, I feel close to that way already. Close to that way being, if someone were to slash my tires because I drive an SUV, I would be mad. I would not call the police on them. I would just get the tires replaced. Well, because you're but, like that, though. You don't drive an SUV in the first place. No, I do drive an SUV. Oh, I didn't know that. You can do them in Colorado. See, that's, All right. So well, it's time yeah, to go I mean, get your tires slashed. Yeah, I mean, there's snow and stuff and, like, sure. you know, a... a Use, we, before this SUV, we had like a 
Jetta from like 1999 and that thing slid all over the road like it had ice tires. But um, that's all fine. That's not really anybody's problem. Like the problem that the climate's bad is the problem that we're trying to deal with. My thing is like this movie goes far enough for me to be like, yeah, you slashed my tires. You left a manifesto. I get why mm -hmm. I'm not going to sick the police on you. But I just replaced my tires. Mm -hmm. That's the difference between slashing somebody's tires versus maybe blowing up a pipeline yeah. or blowing up a yacht. I think it would be interesting. And I think it did change my, well, I think this movie has the capability of changing people's minds. And yet, like you were saying, how they view future climate terrorism. Yeah. Because I do think this is going to keep happening. Uh, you climate know, terrorism is going to keep happening. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we... Texas has been like over 100 degrees for yeah. like over a month. It's like the rainiest season we've had in Denver, the rainiest year we've had in Denver here for a long period of time. Uh, there's these things that uh, you know, Maui fires, these things that are happening that are sort of our climate getting more volatile Yeah, is, I think, going to rightly trigger this response in people like the kids in Montana who sued the state yeah. for not doing environmental surveys and win. One, they won. Yeah, those kids won. Uh, yeah, so I think this is going to happen, and it'll be interesting. I don't... I think this movie is not a motivating factor for people who want to do it. I, from what I know from Java, it sounds like that's what the book yeah. does, is, is like it lays out a scientific case. Yeah. This, I think, is more of a... Uh, I don't know, a translation aid or something to help people who, you know, I like movies. I got Hulu. When this stuff starts happening, maybe we don't do the thing we did to Antifa and demonize the people who are trying to stop the shit. Mm -hmm. Maybe we get behind them and uh, sort of start uh, supporting these types of motions. Are so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please. I was going to go on a real Matt Patches level tangent. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go for so it. the presence of the character Dwayne, who, like, you look at him and you expect him to be, like, a January 6th MAGA guy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the, the what the movie's trying to do is to show him in line with these unlikely um, compatriots. But it made me think about the level of rhetoric on the far right being like, this is an emergency. We have to take our country back. We have to take arms. Like, that level of urgency on both sides of like it is acceptable to do damage to the country in order to get at the greater good that scares me a little bit i think that climate change is far more urgent and more important than anything on the right, right. of course but they don't think that and if the the idea of us winding up with a bunch of people on the far left willing to take that level of extreme action i mean they're not hurting people in this movie i don't know i'm I realize i'm sounding very both sidesy and also like the antifa uh demonizing people you were just talking about but there is there's anxiety that sets in there for me yeah i mean the question is what violence is ultimately going to be more scary to you uh like that's i guess sort of what i was getting at with the slashing sure. tires versus blowing up a boat versus blowing up a pipeline like if we're brought to civil war and we have to choose sides, that is a really direct thing that we're going to, you know, have to choose some sort of side for, I presume. Uh, I mean, we both live location. in liberal cities. I'm sure that we'll be just be drafted. <laughs> we won't, yeah, no I mean, one will make us choose. They'll just know. Great. I mean, if we're doing a draft, then I have a whole other series of problems. <laughs> but 
think you're like, too there old will for be the draft some, at this point. You're, you're good. There will be some sort of metaphorical side. Like yeah. you could right now there people are taking sides without necessarily taking action. Mm-hmm. It's when the action happens and how we legislate on top of that. Yeah. That, you know, makes some sort of uh, sense. Uh, the thing that makes climate action, uh, I think, this important, and what I think the movie's trying to argue, is that it's coming at you now, mm-hmm. and by the time it gets bad enough where you're like, oh no, we fucked up, it is... Too late. Decades too late. Yeah. You already have cancer, your mom already died in a freak heat wave, uh-huh. the government's already seized your property, like, all the things that, are, that appear in this movie... So the this movie's sort of trying to be like a wake up call that like the time to start this action is now. Mm-hmm. I think it does a pretty responsible job in saying what the action is, especially keeping it away. As since this is a technically a fictionalized drama, it would have been very easy for them to like accidentally hurt a person and then have to deal with the yeah the 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 the, the, the fallout from that. But that would have I think complicated the message that this mm-hmm. movie was trying to send. Yeah, even though their plan uh, doesn't go perfectly, like, their commitment to nonviolence works. Yeah, the commitment to not killing anybody. Yeah. I think this is still technically violence by definition. Oh, really? Like, uh, because, even, right, like, violence against property is still violence? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, from my understanding, the book makes a, like, generalized thesis that it's time for violence to push back on these things because like stuff's not working. Mm-hmm. So I, I like how um, it lives up to its title. Uh, a lot of things in this movie, um, you know, are work. Uh, they're very smart about it. They know how to get rid of uh, DNA, how to set up alibis. Uh, they know the science. Uh, they do the research to do uh, the like minimal amount of environmental damage. Uh, they're very focused, and it's just the execution is difficult because it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think the movie does a pretty good job of suggesting that certain people could go in this direction. I don't think it's a radicalizing movie where it's trying to get everybody to go in direction. It's not Philadelphia, where huh. the entire point of the movie is to make you change your mind about one thing. Yeah, I think it's much more generalized than that. It's much more of a thriller. It would like you to be having a good time. And then end up rooting for these people, mm-hmm. even if when you realize what they're doing, you maybe don't agree with them initially. Yeah. By the end of the movie, it would like you to be there. And I think it's mostly successful in that regard, if not completely successful. Yeah. How do you feel about the way it deals with the question of the harm it does to vulnerable people in the first place? Like, there's an argument where, like, if you drive out the price of oil, people who don't have a lot of money won't be able to get to work. And someone else responds like, well, it's either die now of unemployment or die in five years from the ocean levels rising or something like that. And like the, the character shoots back, like you don't get to choose. And I do think the idea that like poor people are not causing the large scale environmental harm, but they are the most likely to like use plastic plates or to need gas to drive to their job. That's really far away because they can't afford to live in the city. Um, I, that is a really complicated factor of doing something like this. And I think that it's good that the movie acknowledges it, but it does. I don't, I don't think it solves that question at all. No, because I think her response is like, it's Sochi's the one responding to this, and she's like, better me than them. And I actually agree with that. Mm. Like, if we're going to have, I mean, I don't want to get so leftist that people just stop listening to me, but (laughs) if you could take care of the people that you're directly spending your life around, if you could take care of your community some sort of communityist 
hint, then um, <laughs> that I think is much easier than um, chasing like a fossil fuel that not only hurts to use, but is incredibly limited. And we're destroying populations by moving it. We aren't even destroy we're mm -hmm. destroying populations by moving it and by using it. Um, so I, I, that the movie actually made a good counter argument to that to me where it's like, well, who gets to choose? And it's like better me than them. I'm like, yes, better you choosing I, than them having to choose or and like, a, no, than like a corporation choosing for I these see. poor people I because see. the, the, I think the, the unsaid thing there is like, it's never going to be those people's no their choice option to choose. Yeah. yeah. It, it's going to happen to them. We are, we are past the point where we could have like a elegaritarian series of choices uh, that would all be okay. I'm not sure how that's, what, that's ever how human society was going to work anyway. At least not yeah, that's true. American society. I mean, once you get something like so big, uh, it becomes unwieldy. unwieldy. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. There was, I was very excited with what this movie got accomplished. Mm -hmm. There was a there was a time period, and the the boat thing happened at the end, and I'm like, did we just did we just whiff the landing? Did we do a rug pull and then a pivot on subject huh. that sort of invalidated what the movie could have like? It could have been such a scalpel at the end, yeah. Uh, if like somebody was blowing up another pipeline, or if it yeah, but instead we're like off to luxury yachts, or if it had, you know some like sabotaging a coal mine or something like that that is interesting but luxury yachts are such a good it made me think about when like someone kept untying betsy devos's boats like it's just like such yeah. a satisfying thing to fuck with so you kind of get why you'd be like yeah but like you don't want this movie to end with people like bombing gas stations <laughs> like focus on right. the structural solutions not the uh right i guess i was expecting it to go more in a fight club direction uh -huh. and less have the whole city falling a... apart yeah well, it's like, you know, or like tar target credit card companies or, you know, like just go yeah. to something else. Um, but uh, pivoting back to personal property that still damages the environment, I can understand. I just maybe would have left that out yeah. of uh, what otherwise was like a pretty uh, meaningful end of the movie montage about uh, where all these people sort of ended up. Yeah, not it, it, it doesn't solve anything. It opens up an idea for the rest of the world in this the film in the film's world. Yeah. Uh, there there aren't a lot of people here at the end who are like, yeah, we did it. Now I'm a millionaire. <laughs> that happens to exactly zero people. <laughs> um, how did Java? What did Java think of it? She didn't watch it with me because I started watching it, assuming she had already watched it, and then she's like, I want to watch it on my own. So I'm gonna have to check back in on that one when she gets around to it. Um. But yeah, uh, I know she really, really liked the book, and uh, I'll yeah throw the link in the description because she emailed me and told me to. So you guys, if you are interested, can get a free copy of this ebook and read about the actual persuasive reasons why maybe this action is uh, long overdue. But if you just want to dip your little toe in the water and have uh, less than two hours of Breaking Bad worth of runtime, this is uh, a pretty well done desert thriller. Uh, Even if you overall. want to maybe be a person who does not think that uh, someone who does such a thing deserves to spend their life in prison and just uh, move your mental goalposts a tiny bit, maybe the movie will do that. Yep. Or maybe you want to watch it and watch these people fail. Like, give it a try. I want to see here That's if true. it switches your mind, too. Uh, the, the movie exists to be the thing that's debated. Uh, so it is absolutely 
valid to watch this movie and be like, I'm against these people. Uh, that's that's just the movie not getting to you. I, I understand. No. Uh, but yeah, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It's on Hulu. Easy to watch. And available for purchase. And short. Love a short movie. Yeah. And short. Can always uh, spend some time and not get that time back if you if you need to. That does it for this week's episode. You heard some combination of us, but I'm here with Dave right now. I guess you just heard us on how to blow the <laughs> pipeline. So the continuity is better than I'm giving myself credit for. Uh, we'll, we'll be back next week. I may or may not. I'll be coming back from Toronto. So we'll, we'll see how things shake out for me next week. But I think you'll hear fall festivals. Oh. What are you what are you excited about in Toronto? Um, to get there. I haven't been since 2019. Um, and like I was telling you earlier that there was a COVID scare in our household where I was like, OK, that's it. I'm not going this year. So just like the fact that I might cross the border is pretty exciting. Um, yeah. I'm excited for next goal wins the Taika Waititi movie. That looks fun. Fun. I'm hearing really good things about American Fiction, which is Cord Jefferson's first movie. He was, you know, like oh. started off like a uh, a blogger like us, and then became a TV writer and it won an Emmy. And now he's very successful. Um, yeah, there's some other good stuff in there. It's Anatomy of a Fall, the movie that one can is screening there. Um, cue David if he were here, being Ooh, like, yeah, "Yeah, I saw that one already." It's like, okay, thanks, David. I haven't seen it yet. Um, <laughs> and I'm gonna go to Canada and see some friends. It's gonna be a good time. Awesome. So I'll be back Looking from that eventually. In the meantime, Dave. Tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, executive editor over at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter, Blue Sky, Letterboxd, all of these things at Mr. Patches. We have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can probably listen to us or David talk about going to Telluride in previous years if you want to compare about has the lack of oxygen hurt him over time? Compare episodes and you'll be able to know. Go to fightinginthewarroom.com to listen to the backlog. Uh, I am David Ehrlich. Uh, you can find me on X, my name, <laughs> and uh, elsewhere. You can find me in, uh, if you're a fan of this podcast, if, uh, if they do exist and there's more than one of them, uh, you can find me in Toronto. Next week, I suppose. Uh, I'll be there for at least a couple days over this coming weekend covering the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, I am reaching for my passport as I say this and making sure that it's visible on my desk so I do not forget it. Um, you can find all of us together in one place, really the only place, is in the iTunes review section. Go to Fighting in the War Room on iTunes, leave us a review. We're really live on the show. I don't know if we did that this week because I wasn't here for that part of the show. If not, we'll do it next oh, week. Oh, we did. Great. Just great. Uh, uh, Dave. Cool. Yeah. You can also email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. Still call it Twitter, apparently, at DA70. You could uh, pre-order my book about Marvel the MC, at the com and listen to me on several podcasts around the internet. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm Katie Rich. You can find me on Little Gold Men talking in so much more detail <clears throat> about all these fall festivals. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich on. Uh, oh, hang on. I'm on Blue Sky. At also, Katie Rich, I think. And I'm on Threads, but I'm not using it. I'm never going to get this right. I'm still just using Twitter, even though it's owned by a fucking anti-Semite. And like, I mean, these these wars will be over one day and we'll look back <laughs> on these podcasts and be like why were we even worried 
about there being three, because now there's just one. So we'll get there. I would prefer it get there before the book comes out, so I don't have to write everything three times, mm. but mm. we'll get there. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that brave future is happening that quickly. Uh, anyway, the, that's where you can find me. You can find all of us on Twitter and Blue Sky at FITWR, uh, where you can give me your cat advice. I do need it. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of the Nun 2 in theaters this weekend, what is your favorite nun in movies? Thanks for listening, and some of us will be back talking to you next week. Ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. Now I'm done. I'm done. We're done.